Hi, welcome to today's episode of Weird Era. I'm talking to author Anna Kana Schofield, who is the author of the acclaimed Giller Prize shortlisted novel Martin, which was also a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, the Goldsmith Prize in the UK, a New York Times Editor's Choice, and named a Best Book of the Year by the Wall Street Journal, the Globe and Mail, National Post, the Irish Times, among others. Her debut novel, Malarkey, won the Amazon First Novel Award, the debut Litzer Prize for Fiction in the United States, and was a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Her writing and reviews have appeared in The Guardian, The Irish Times, The Globe and Mail, National Post, London Review of Books Blog, and The Long Gaze Back, an anthology of Irish women writers. She lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. Bina is a novel in warnings, an unforgettable tour de force in the voice of an ordinary, extraordinary woman who has simply had enough. Through the character of Bina, who is writing out her story on the backs of discarded envelopes, Anna Kana Schofield filters a complex moral universe filled with humor and sadness, love and rage, and the consolations, obligations, and mysteries of lifelong friendship. A work of great power, skill, and transformative empathy from a unique and astonishing writer. Hi, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So I want to start off by asking, um, format? Format. I want to talk about format because format feels integral to this novel, full of footnotes and poetry like prose with repetitive phrasing. Yet the voice of the narrator is also very conversational. It made me want to ask you what you wanted to get out of writing as a writer and what you like to get out of reading as a reader. And I'm wondering if the answer is the same or different. Great question. Well, I guess I'm usually reading towards that, which I want to write perhaps. Um, I'm also a reader before I'm a writer. I was a reader before I was a writer and I'll be a reader, I guess, if I'm ever finished being a writer, (laughs) which looks like I won't be finished anytime soon. uh, Unless, you know, the good Lord strikes me from the earth uh, before Friday. Um, so all I've written three novels and all of my novels um, have subtitles, like subheadings. So the first one, Malarkey, a novel in episodes. Martin John, a footnote novel. And Bina, a novel in warnings. So the form of the novel is right there in the title of the novel. Um, So I'm always curious about form. How can I write novels, um, you know, that become what they need to become? And I'm curious about what the novel can become rather than what I've known it to be. So um, what do I get out of writing it? Uh, Yeah, that's a really, that's kind of a tricky question uh, because most of the time, an awful lot of anguish is what I get out of writing it. Usually an awful lot of a lack of sleep, vitamin D deprivation. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not to be recommended, really. <laughs> There's got to be better ways to waste your time than writing novels. But here we are. Um, here we are, presently writing another novel <laughs> as I enter my 50th year. I have a question about that, actually. Oh, good. Um, Well, so like I say, I think for me, I'm just deeply, deeply curious about language. You know, I'm deeply curious about literature. And, you know, I just kind of bury myself 
uh, within my um, whatever my departure is. Now, those three novels are actually um, a triptych. They're they're conceptually like three panels in a painting. So Malarkey, my first novel, Baina is a residual character in Malarkey. She's the main character's best friend. And then Martin John is a residual character in Malarkey. So the, um, the first line of Martin John is, Martin John has never been to Beirut. He has only been to London to visit his auntie Noni. And in Malarkey, Martin John was called Beirut. He was a man in the psychiatric ward who believed he'd been to Beirut. So I, I pick it up. And then Baina was a character in Malarkey, and she's probably best remembered for two things. One, she took a hammer to a plane uh, on a protest at Shannon Airport, um, an American military jet that was on a layover. Um, and then there was a line in Malarkey that uh, stayed with me, and it was when she says to um, the main character, the main character, our woman, Philomena, who also shows up in um, Bina, is in the psychiatric ward and she's having an unwinding and Bina advises her, don't let them put anything in your mouth and don't let them put anything up the other end either. And so that stayed with me, that line, and it's a warning. So then I had the idea, ah, okay, what would that be? What would it be to find the language of warnings? It's interesting because I actually have a question about the triptych that you just that you just outlined, but but specifically in this first question before we get to that, I'm wondering what you think the value of writing in this specific kind of style is for you, specifically considering that this book is, you know, essentially supposed to be written on the back of envelopes on scraps of paper and and any readers who, you know, you know, um, explore the book, we'll see that there are redacted bits, there are footnotes, there are references, there are repetitions. It's not a, a conventional novel where, you know, the prose kind of just follows and outlines one sentence after the other. Um, and I'm just wondering why you did that and or what you like about it doing that, because I can tell you what I enjoyed as a reader from that perspective, but I'm wondering if it's the same feeling uh, as the writer. Well, I guess there's two answers to that question. And, you know, if we go back to the title, it says it's a novel in warning. So right. what I thought about was, okay, what does the language of warnings look like? Mm -hmm. It's generally boxy, right? Uh, it's usually inside. Um, usually we encounter warnings on the back of packets or cigarettes, or then there's the auditory warning, which is the echo of your parents, your mother, your granny telling you, don't touch that. And generally warnings situate themselves earlier in life. And then gradually we give up on warning people. <laughs> like if you think back to childhood, parents will often say, I'm warning you, don't do that again, right? If you um, have a parking infraction, you sometimes get a warning ticket. So I was curious about that moment, the moment of warning and how I might deploy that to end of life. Um, I'm more interested, I have been preoccupied, I would say, in my first three novels with age and, and rather than youth and the ramifications of 
of what you age into, what ages with you. And in some ways, you know, this is the thing I love about literature and I love about writing novels. Like Bina came out in Canada in 2019. And it's unusual to be talking to somebody in our beloved country of Canada, specifically in Montreal, um, where virtually nobody ever talks to me. Uh, so this is very special to get this chance to speak to you um, because Bina has aged into a different world from the world that it was written in. Did I know that we were going to be in lockdown and in a global pandemic when I wrote this book? Because of course, the way, as you know, because you're a publishing person, the way that publishing works is the novel is finished at least 15, if not longer, months before it comes to be published. I mean, you're copy editing it a uh, full let me think, you're at, you're at the copy editing stage uh, the previous summer to it coming out in May. So, so you have no sense of, of, of what the world, and I love that. I love that, that Binder just came out in America, just came out last uh, February, it came out in America. So the conversation around this book now is quite different from what it was in May 2019. And I mean, it, it came out in the UK the day we went into lockdown. So. So it's a very, it's, it's a, a curious thing. So in the same way, um, you know, these are philosophical questions. So it, in, inevitably in my work, I'm interested in positing some kind of philosophical inquiry, but then responding to it by like not giving like didacticism, not saying, well, you know, this is how this complicated consideration is, it's X and it's Y. So I tend to leave things open and let the reader complete that. Um, so the other thing I was going to say is that when I thought about, uh, when I think now, you know, conceptually now my brain is very wrapped up in what the book has aged into within the world, which is completely separate, a, a totally separate process um, from the writing of a book. But it's a new process. It's a new awakening, a new dawning for me. And it's only because of the pandemic that I've been able to recognize the duration of a book's existence after you've finished writing it. And I've become quite fascinated by this. I'm not sure anybody else is fascinated by it, but I'm over here by myself being fascinated at how my book that I wrote um, that looked at the question of autonomy and dying, that looked at what is the value of being an old woman, and the thing that's important to realize about Bina is she has no interest in appealing to you. She's not interested in whether you like her or you don't like her. She's fed up conforming. She has no intention of obliging you. She is, you know, you know, she's like, I mean, she's, she's resolutely disobliging. And I think as I dream, as I become, not dream, as I become an old woman, I intend to be immensely disobliging and you know I'm going to take my example from from Bina because so much of women's life lives has been historically about obliging the needs of others so in the same way that you have like right. early life and you have warnings I wanted to uh, export that early life experience and see okay what would it look like at the end of life and what would it be like if we left a document full of warnings behind us when we died and how would that be if your, I don't know, your children or your relatives or your friends could pick that up 
and you could be warned about what was impending. I mean, of course, I think like a novelist. So I'm constantly making up, you know, li largely implausible ideas <laughs> in the world. But that's why fiction's my, uh, you know, fiction's my swimming pool. I also can't swim. So that's another reason. I can't swim either. Um, I, that's not common, I don't think. I've also heard you say that your creative approach essentially revol revolves around an attempt to try to actively create a body of work, that that's what you're trying to do. You're actively trying to create a body of work. So the reality is, is that I have not read your other prior two novels. I only read Bina and I thoroughly loved it. But my question for you, I guess, is within that context, how do you feel about that and future readers who will meet these people, these stories independently and not necessarily in the triptych that you have outlined? Well, I feel that it's exciting for readers to grapple with, with, with concepts. Artists grapple with concepts all the time. Like when we look at visual art, we're much more ambitious when we look at, at visual art than we are when we consider the novel. In fact, the novel is you know, antiquated, it's anachronistic in comparison in the way that we look at what we're pre prepared to embrace and consider when we go to the novel. I, I think that the books stand independently of each other and you don't actually have to have read any of them. Uh, maybe you get like a, if there are three novels, you get a fourth experience of, you know, a hopscotch where you'll maybe have moments of recognition. But when I write the novels, I don't go back and revisit the book that I wrote, which is a very weird thing. Um, I only had to, go, I only went back to Malarkey in regards to Bina once we got to the copy edit because my editor uh, had called attention to a way in which I had structured something in a sentence. And that sentence had been lifted from malarkey and so I went back and actually she was right I had misremembered it uh, and then I realized when I went back to check that uh, I never go back which is really bizarre but since originally it was going to be a quartet of novels it was going to be four and so I was writing so the way it worked was malarkey Martin John and then there were going to be two novels it was going to be Bina and this fourth novel that I'm working on but when I finished the draft of Bina, I felt that to, because the idea was conceptually, what would it be like to read two books, to write two books and publish them simultaneously and then give the reader two books, two panels in a, in a painting and ask them to, 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 to do that and that there would be a connection. But, and then I realized I was excited about it conceptually. I wanted to challenge myself as a writer but the part of the onus or the impetus for doing that was that I think on some psychological level, um, I had kind of um, intuited the idea that a novel with 320 pages inside the mind and the kidneys and the brain of a 74-year-old woman was somehow not enough, right? And then I realized once I had finished, once I wrote that draft, I, I thought, no. I won't subordinate her to a second book because what people will do is they may focus on, okay, what's the connection here? And, and then that wouldn't be interesting. It wouldn't be, you know, I want readers to be, I want to, I want to kind of galvanize readers. I don't want to, so I wanted them more to kind of, to, for their thinking to go outward and bigger. And I realized, no, it would just come smaller. 
and it would be like a postage stamp and then and then then people would say then it would be like weighing one novel against the other so I think my publisher was pretty relieved that I dropped that idea. <laughs> I guess that answers my question, which is like, <laughs> are we going to see Bina again? Well, I, you know, it's so weird. I'm really wrestling with this at the moment because I've got, so the novel that I'm working on at the moment is a Vancouver novel. And the other three were Ireland, London, and Ireland again. And this one is Vancouver. And, and so it's, it's, And it's really, I always struggle so much to write my books and I always reach this horribly, like really, really, really uh, gloomy stage where I'm just buried and I just can't see my way out of it. And, and I just think, oh, I'm never, ever going to finish another book. And it's, you know, anybody that has to listen to me will attest I'm totally unbearable. And, um, and so, you know, but anybody who's published me or worked with me knows this stage and I'm at that stage right now with this book. And usually what I do is I usually kind of have to shake things up and, you know, take some crazy risk and either have a book or I don't have a book. And historically it's worked out, but with this book, I don't know. So, um, so I'm struggling with that. I'm really struggling and I'm so tempted instead to go back to the character in Malarkey, Phil, and now tell her story the other way around from Onbina. Because, of course, I love those women. Um, but, you know, let me talk about making a body of work. Like, we, we talk about a life's work, and I do anyway. And, and I have to think in those terms, because otherwise I'd be so depressed. You know, when you make, when you're trying to make literature, you're not just trying to make, you know, a novel that lots of people will just jump on for whatever reasons people jump on novels. I have no idea what they are, but like these are literary, truly literary works. They, they ask you, they demand things of the reader that aren't always comfortable. Um, and you do get pushback, but I also feel that readers are, um, like I, I don't underestimate them. They're smarter than me. There are more of them than me. Um, they've historically shown us that they can, and they love to embrace challenge, you know? Yeah, some people read for escapism and that's fine. You, you know, there is a lot of room for all sorts of reading, um, but I'm just not interested in, like, I don't go to literature to find myself. I find myself in the mirror and it's bad enough, right? I don't want to go, you know, I want to make, I want to go to literature and find something, but of course I'm a writer, so I'm interested in language. So I'm excited by that. I'm excited by art making, right? I'm excited by creative decision making. Well, and I know so that- Bina is a novel full of warnings, as we've mentioned. And particularly with regards, I mean, it's a novel of warnings, but particularly with regards to an all too commonly feminine experience, that of a violent and emotional abusive partner, specifically in this book, he's a male. On page 70, you write- He's not he- a partner. He's not a partner he's good clarification. Thank you for that. Um, But I guess the point I'm trying to say is that on page 70, you write, if you tell me you've had enough, I will believe you. Then on page 84, you write, find me the woman who is allowed to be utterly miserable. Find me her now. Will I put the kettle on? 
all of these repetitions felt like an affirmation of a long history of a society that doesn't believe specifically, again, a woman, but kind of anyone who sounds crazy. Listeners can't hear, but I'm kind of putting air quotes right now. What is sounds crazy, crazy in general? What does that mean? And so I want to ask you about this word crazy. Like, is it a fair word for anyone? What do you think of this word crazy as a descriptive? Because I'm sure you have encountered it with regards to this text. I often find the some of the readings are very reductive on the characters, the books that I write. Some of them, not all of them. Usually they're on Goodreads, the reductive ones. And they're also <laughs> wonderful. They're also wonderful. I mean, I don't read Goodreads anymore for that reason because it's just, you get depressed. But, but they're also like wonderful engagements with literature. But I, you know, I think that it's a lot more, uh, the, for me anyway, the question is, and this was what I was interested in exploring is, why, what about the people that we lumber ourselves with? So the thing that you're referring to is Eddie. So Bina, at the beginning of the novel, Bina's been arrested for assisting in a suicide. Bina is part of a kind of right to die group who go around volunteering to help people who've had enough to end their lives. So that's why the line, if you tell me you've had enough, I will believe you. It is true that it's a metaphor for much, much more. Um, but that relates directly to her assisting people to die. Um, but Eddie, um, so it's, this is a little complicated. That's the other thing about my novels. They're kind of like, somebody described them as mosaics, right? Where mm -hmm. you have to put all these pieces together. And so the way that they unfold, they don't un unfold in linear time. Uh, and they require a, like a, a I guess an astuteness from the reader to pick up stuff and to make, to knit all that stuff together in their own way. Um, so Bina has been arrested for assisting in the suicide of, um, it turns out to be Phil, the woman from Malarkey. And so Eddie, this young man who crashed his motorbike into her wall um, and she took him in, like she took him in, which is not unusual, uh, you know, strange people in the back bedroom. It's not entirely unusual in some rural communities. Um, you know, you might live with your aunt or there are all kinds of reasons why. And now finally, at the beginning of the novel, she's been stuck with this young man who's a nightmare and he's abusive, uh, but he's not a partner and he's not her son. He's referred to as her sort of son because he was also in malarkey. Um, he's finally gone. She's finally gotten rid of him. And part of the reason that he's gone is because she's been arrested. <laughs> so it's like she had to be worse on him in order to get rid of him. So I think that what I'm interested in uh, is like, why do women lumber themselves? Who do we lumber ourselves with and why? And how do we lumber ourselves? And because that's the thing about Vina. I mean, she um, chose to, to, to let him in. She chose, she couldn't, she could go to other people's kitchens and she could relieve their suffering. But in her own kitchen, she cannot, she cannot fix this, this odor, as she calls him. So, I mean, in terms of the word crazy, that doesn't, that doesn't really register for me. Um, there is, in my first novel, there is a lot of stuff about mental health in my first two books, because the second novel, the, the main character is a sex offender, he's a predator. Um, and I do, uh, I mean, I definitely do, you know, ask very difficult questions of the reader. 
Um, I don't think I understand your question about the word crazy. I mean, you did kind of address it. I'm thinking about the dismissal, the social dismissal of women. I see where you're coming from now with the question. Now yeah. it makes a little more sense to me. I, d- I didn't understand it at first because the context was a bit off, but now I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I'm, the, Martin John is the book that addresses that mm-hmm. because Martin John's mother uh, sacrifices other people's children. Mm-hmm basically to protect her own son, who's a predator. And, you know, people said, and I, when I wrote that book, I wrote that book deliberately in response to a period in history where certainly that women of my generation lived with, and it seems to be fu- similarly future generations. I mean, Martin John was published two years before the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. um, you know, and for women of my generation, I don't think we ever imagined a day where there would be any accountability for sexual harassment. It was just a given. If you, I mean, you worked in a job and I mean, I can still remember working in a bar and just like, you just got so used to just getting out of the way or contorting or trying to avoid, you know, that person, that man's coming past you. Well, you know, now you're going to have to escape the octopus hands or like, I remember once reporting, um, another coworker had received like this ridiculous, um, kind of leisure from I guess so long ago I can't remember the details but basically I went and reported uh, I went with her we reported this um, missive that she'd been sent that was just like really and really inappropriate um, and basically got fired essentially because we were temporary workers and then the next week it was like well and you know that was what you got for for speaking up uh, so you just became kind of I mean in some ways you just knew that there's just very little hope of any change. I definitely didn't imagine. I mean, I interviewed Vivian Gornick recently uh, for the Toronto Public, yeah, Toronto Public Library. And she, I mean, she, as she said, like 1970s, red hot feminist, mm-hmm. uh, like women's uh, total, you know, amazing activist. And she's just, they can't, she just says she just can't believe what's happening is wonderful. But um, I mean, obviously I'm younger than her because she's 80 I guess is she 85 um she's a bit younger but I mean I'm only 50 but I even that generation I still can't believe so um yeah so Martin John was really about the fact that um you know there was all these all these um inquiries in Ireland and in Canada into the abuse in the church and you know just looking at the language in them and just all of these cases that came out it was um there was a dreadful case of a, a gynecologist who I think was like sexually abusing women or I don't even remember. There's been so many of them. And I remember this story about this woman and her husband went to the parish priest to complain some story like that. And he basically lit into them and, you know, and that was the atmosphere, right? It was, you know, it was, there was a lot of shame. It was all sort of shame, shame, um, I think people have also described it as kind of like piety culture. So there just wasn't any space. There just was not any space, you know, domestic abuse. I mean, it's still virulent, still like we haven't, I was thinking about this yesterday. I saw this ridiculous thing in France. They are now trying to stop women being able to wear the hijab in public. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and I was just like, what, why don't they try to stop like the murder 
of women? Why don't they stop the, the violence, the domestic abuse? Why don't they stop? Like, mm-hmm. nobody ever got injured from a hijab. Like, you know, like, I just was like, what is wrong with these? What is what, what planet? And then I just realized, plus sachets, you know? Like, we, we will fixate on some totally irrelevant thing, which is just like what you're wearing on your head. Meanwhile, you know, there's a thing on um, Twitter, Femicide, I think it's called, where they mm-hmm. list all the cases of, mm-hmm. of women who are generally murdered by men they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just look at it and you think, you know, and then it's always in the news, like some terrible thing will happen. And then they say, well, this person who did this terrible thing and whatever, murdered 80 people or whatever, also had a history of domestic violence. And yeah. you just... I don't know. It just really struck me when I saw that yesterday. I was just like, good God, like we, we don't have more. I mean, first of all, it's a non-issue. It is a non-issue what women are wearing on their head. Uh, it is a non-issue. Um, but above and beyond that, I just can't believe that they can't see that there are more pressing needs right now, not just in that country, in any country. Like, Well, it's interesting. You've described this book as a book about female friendship. You literally acknowledge it as such later. But it's also just, to me at least, it read as a general text full of, and it is, it's a book on female friendship. I don't want to belittle that. Mm. I think actually that's, that's actually the most important thing in that book. Yeah. I think I think it's the heart of the book, but I also feel that the text is just full of general suspicion and distrust for an overarching system of governing. And it's not specific to any one thing because, you know, Bina doesn't trust the media fairly enough. They're not on her side. She doesn't trust, you know, people around her there there's a group of hippies so-called hippies who are like yeah yeah they're crusties but hippies is exactly what they are yeah but yeah so they're they're, you know camped out in her backyard and she can't trust them she obviously couldn't trust eddie and she doesn't trust the cops and you know especially in today's world Mm. i don't i think this is a strong and resonant um you know energy that is that is kind of all shared right now but specifically vibrant in this text um and so I guess I just wondered, yes, this novel is about female friendship. Don't get me wrong. I thought it was. But is it also anti-establishment? Um, yes, actually, I guess it is. I mean, you know, um, you know, it's so interesting to hear, hear your read on it, um, because, of course, the things that you're uh, bringing up, which, which is very, very interesting and curious and I agree with everything you're saying. Of course, I see them as like literary devices. So for example, mm-hmm. the redacted thing was again, like, again, it just, it's just like, as a writer, I'm interested in text and in court documents, I saw redacted, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and I actually called, I actually used originally redacted as a word, but the designer put the black stripes so that was also used as a way to create propulsion because if I put limits on, so Biner is very limited in what she can tell us because she's implicating herself legally in what she's, she's confessing. So that was very useful as a literary device. Um, yeah, it's very anti-establishment insofar as, um, you know, there's a line in it where she says, uh, you know, something about not getting a fair trial and how rapists and murderers 
will never come to court or whatever. I can't remember the line, but there's a line where she actually states that the court system is stacked against an old woman like her and her mercy killing uh, versus, you know, rapists and murderers who, you know, basically never rarely get, especially rapists, rarely get convicted. Um, so, yeah, I think it is anti-establishment. I also think it's, I think it's ordinary. I think it's very ordinary. I don't think you have to like have a, you know, you don't have to start like a political movement to be, to, to be pissed off or to be, you know, just to, to just be expressing something. Um, and one of the things that I really loved was the contradiction of those earnest crusties or granolas or because, you know, they're, they're so earnest and they want to protect her. And so they arrive at her back door because they think she's heroic. And they say, don't worry, we're, we're going to build a human chain around you. We, we'll, we'll fight them. And she says, oh, God, go away. Like, I don't want you here. I just leave me in peace. And so it was also comedy, right? Like the generational gaps was a beautiful kind of space to make comedy. And you know, and to talk about distances between generations, um, you know, because I do think, again, I, I just find there's a lot of focus on youth. There's a lot of focus on being young. You know, being young is held up as, as the ambition. And I just, I never really thought it was that great being young. Um, I've always kind of favoured uh, age. I don't know why that is. Maybe I'm just an old person who was, Maybe I'm a was an old person, young, but and I hate the way that women are. You know, it's demanded that women aren't able to age. I've been taking pictures actually of news people on TV lately, just looking at how men are allowed to be wrinkled, you know, and yet women aren't allowed to show any sign of aging. And I just find it so strange uh, because what's wrong with uh, having life. lived a life and this is a really noble and wonderful thing and there are other cultures where age is much more kind of respected um, anyway so those are like but it's all literary like these are literary things that I'm trying to work with like how do I translate say anti-establishment into a literary experience not because otherwise I'd just be writing a political pamphlet and that's where it starts to get the line between art, making art versus making a political pamphlet. Because I feel like, well, if I want to, if, if I want to change the world, writing novels is probably not the most efficient, useful way to do it. You know what I mean? If I want to actually go out and affect political change and change the world. I should run for office and I should, you know, publish a manifesto, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a writer, I'm a literary writer. I want to write fiction. So, you know, and it, becomes uninteresting as well if you're too didactic it's not interesting for the reader because you're going to basically have a bunch of people either agreeing or disagreeing with you and that's what we talked about before we came to air was you know you know I struggle with that today in in literature um people just basically transcribing their emails as novels I mean I call it sort of can't be arsed fiction Whereas maybe, like I say, maybe it's generational, maybe somebody dropped me on my head, but... You actually said there were too many feelings in literature Yeah, well, everybody's today. so busy. Well, everybody's so busy having feelings that I don't think the reader gets to feel anything. So the reader will rock up to recognize themselves. Uh, and then if they don't find themselves, then they won't 
be able to sort of relate in any way, shape or form. Well, that's not, that's not the purpose of art. <laughs> like that's the purpose of like going and finding yourself to me, then write personal narrative or essays. But, you know, I also don't want to find myself. I don't think I'm that interesting. Uh, I, I, for me, that space of fiction is about invention. It's about, it's about playfulness. It's about theatricality. It's about the ludic. It's about creating a state that like giving status that we don't have in life. I could turn that upside down. I can make Bina Beowulf, basically, right? She's like broadcasting. I mean, she's broadcasting to you for 320 pages. Like in life, nobody pays attention to Bina. Nobody cares about Bina. Bina's like alone. Nobody's going to help Bina. Who gives a shit about all women? Like, be honest. Like, look at the pandemic. Look at the LTC crisis. Nobody gives a shit about, about these, you know, and especially old single women, like growing old alone is another thing that fascinates me. Sorry, I, that was a very harsh, that was very harsh. There are lots of people out there who do care, but I mean, broadly as a society, right? I think there's nothing like this pandemic to show us like how little we care about, about old women, you know? I, I don't be sorry. I think that's actually a really important um, concept. I hope you explore it someday in another novel. I can't, I can't tell you what to do, but <laughs> hearing you also, if it makes you so angry and it makes me angry too, but I don't know if I'm the person to do it. And I think you might be. So I'm just curious about what that looks like down the line. Um, I can put a count and say, this is the third time in a novel where I have faced this question of self-euthanization. It first came to me, I don't remember years, I'm terrible at this, but when I first read uh, All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves, um, and then a contemporary St. Henry favorite, actually one of my favorites, one of my favorite authors, What Are You Going Through by Sigrid Nunes. Um, I feel like I understand why the conversation of self-euthanization makes people uncomfortable. I mean, it even makes Bina uncomfortable. She's conflicted. She loves her best friend. She wants her best friend to get everything they could possibly want, but she, she doesn't want to lose them at the same time. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me about society's discomfort of this topic and the reason you felt it was important to face that head on in this novel um, and, and, and the kind of what drove you to do that. Well, you know, every single day we're a, close, a day closer to dying. Every day that you're alive, you're a day, it's a day that you're closer to dying. Some would so, say that's bleak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, I am a bit, I mean. I mean, I think the same I, way. <laughs> I mean, I just consider it more like a kind of utopic pessimism. Like, as in, I don't think. Well, I mean, I just wrote an essay. I don't know if you saw, but I wrote an essay in the New York Times about, about grief and about, I, I volunteered as a witness for um, Dying with Dignity, helping people to apply for medical assistance in dying, mm -hmm. which we're very, very lucky to have here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So thank you to the many people that worked tirelessly to make that happen. Um, you know, I guess it's more a question also of autonomy and self-determination. And I find it strange that, I mean, I just, I, I'm really interested in contradictions. And I think humans are just innately contradictory, myself being the main offender. But I'm probably contradicted myself 17 times already in this interview. Um, so, I mean, 
you know, I live in Vancouver. We have like the worst opioid crisis. We have lost thousands and thousands of people who did not want to be dead. And we did nothing really. We've, we've, we've definitely tried, you know, we're giving out Narcan kits. We have safe injection sites. And there are people who are, again, tirelessly advocating, but we still haven't done what needs to be done in order that people will not die. So it was our public health crisis far before COVID. And, in, and actually the volume of people have died uh, from opioid overdoses is, is massive, massive compared to COVID. So I was really interested in that, at that especially at that time when I was writing a little bit about the topic, um, that we won't do anything really significant because what of course we need to do is give people access to safe heroin which we can do i mean there's some in, there are some um you know infrastructure issues but that can be addressed um if you have the will i mean just like we before we had safe injection sites it, you know people had to work um to to realize that so the thing is that so a lot of people have died now uh, who didn't want to be dead who who never wanted to be dead you know, they're substance users and um, they're addicts. And so I found that just so desperate that we would knowingly let people die in a way that if they had kidney disease or if they had diabetes, we wouldn't let them die. The medical system would step in. And yet on the other end of it, we have like 95-year-old Auntie Margot, who's like lived a good long life. Auntie Margot ran the library or whatever Auntie Margot did. And Auntie Margot has like pains all over her body. She has no quality of life left. And, you know, and she's living alone and nobody comes to visit her, maybe, or maybe they do. But, and Auntie Margot is just tired. And Auntie Margot says, do you know what, Ladza? I've just, I've lived 95 years and I'd like to die next Thursday because, you know, I'm in a lot of pain and this isn't suiting me. And so we'll say, no, 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 Auntie Margot, you're not dying until you know, the good Lord sends for you or whoever, or, you know, we're just not allowing you. So that's where I was struggling. Like, and then there's also the question of people who, who, who commit, choose to end their lives, commit suicide, which is a totally different thing from um, assisted dying. Like nobody who's looking for assisted dying, like medical assisted dying, you know, that is a very different thing from from the, from committing suicide, they're totally different impulses. Um, so again, I just feel like it's part is this big, big conversation, and at the center of it is death. And so we don't don't want to really talk about dying because, of course, it's bleak. And so as a result, you know, people can't exercise choices, and we're failing. It seemed to me at that time when I was thinking about this novel, it's like, well, we're failing on every single level. I mean, if we could start having conversations about dying, maybe people who feel desperate, who are like suicidal and depressed, maybe we could have sensible conversations with them and maybe we could help them. And at the same time, maybe if we actually thought, hang on a minute, opioid users don't want to be dead. They're just trying to grapple with, it, with their addiction. Maybe we could also help them. And at the same time, we would also say, do you know what, Anthony Margot? you know, we, 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 we believe you've had enough. <laughs> now I have to say things again on that topic of books aging into the world. 
I mean, things have really um, are moving along in Canada. I think that they did public consultation and they're just changing the law and they're making they're making access of who can access made more sensible because and I mean, I haven't really studied too hard into the details of it. I know this controversy and I know some people feel very, very, very strongly. They have the, I think, misguided idea that we're pushing people off the planet. Actually, it's very, very, it's very strictly controlled. I know because I volunteered for filling in the forms. And, and all I would say to those people is before, you know, you didn't have a choice and now you have a choice. And nobody's asking you if you're opposed to, to medically assisted dying or assisted dying. Nobody's asking you to apply for it. And, and of course, it's complicated because there are a lot of people with like severe disabilities whose needs aren't being met. But those are different conversations. And um, so I'm really I'm really impressed with just the public conversation that's happened. Um, it can always be better. And then like the philosophical conversations, I mean, they're just difficult conversations. I mean, I've lost a number of friends to suicide and I've really, really, really struggled with that because like I say, I'm a strong supporter of the right to die as in people with terminal illness, people who are end of life, people who are just suffering intolerably. But I don't conflate the two. And, you know, I have a big hole in my heart right now and a big big, big hole that will never, ever be filled from the people I've lost who I didn't, wasn't able to, to reach. And of course you blame yourself and people say, oh, you shouldn't blame yourself. And it's like, well, yeah, but you actually should confront it. You should actually, I just believe in staring things down, but I I think I'm a little hypocritical because I only seem to believe in staring certain things down. And for me, it seems to be all about dying, but you know, we're all I guess everybody like gives according to what they're able. And for some reason, the one thing that, fi- that I am very interested in is death. And I think it's probably, the psychoanalysts would say, because, you know, I lost my father when I was six. So my introduction to life was, was death. So maybe that's part of it. But I hope it's a little more, I hope it's a little more nuanced than that, you, you know, you know, and I'm, I want, I want to, like, I'm a no, I hate to keep beating this boring drum, but, but we're in, what we do is we're art making, we're, we're trying to respond to difficult questions, like, and, and that's what art does, art pokes, and it probes, and it asks you to think about, like, sculpture asks you to consider angles, abstract painting asks you to consider color, and blotches, and dimensions in literature for me and I'm not certainly not trying to impose my interests on anybody um, but I want uh, to see what can language do in the way that painting the way that when I listen to Jacqueline Dupre's Elgar's cello concerto like you know I just feel like it's just like this big Stanley knife going up and down my you know my aortas or something it's just so I just find that her rendition of that so beautiful and not just I mean Elgar's concerto was kind of very conservative music but like so much music I just find it so just an extraordinary experience I'm I'm not musical really I'm really terrible at singing but you know I just love the sound of the French horn so I want to find okay how can I as a writer 
but what can I do with language? How can I find the language to somehow lift up those stones or do what the French horn does? You know, I guess I'm a little, I guess I'm a little odd, but I'm trying. <laughs> I'm really trying. Thank you. This is great. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the lovely, lovely, thoughtful questions. 